One other announcement just to uh, test everyone's flexibility and uh, ability to recall important information. This week we will have uh, our midweek Bible class on uh, Wednesday night at the normal time, but next week, rather than having it on December the 11th, which is Wednesday, it will be on Thursday night, December the 12th. I will be, uh, as usual at this time of year, I will be attending the pre-trib rapture study group meeting in Dallas. So that week we will have our Bible class on Thursday night. And then, of course, please pay attention to your bulletin because uh, that information is always on the calendar. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship ready to uh, put out of our minds all of the uh, fun family times we had the last two or three days and ready to focus on the Word, put aside the cares and worries and anxieties about what may come to pass in the next few weeks and to focus on the teaching of the Word and our own spiritual growth. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary to make sure we're in fellowship and then we'll then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word today that it is your word that is truth and is Our Lord informed us, if we know the truth, the truth will set us free. The true freedom is a matter of the soul. True freedom is in relationship to spiritual life. And without that freedom, there is really no other true, genuine freedom. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we do have in this nation. We pray that you would continue to give our leaders wisdom, that you would continue to protect our president, that you would continue to... Uh, provide the correct intelligence and information necessary in order to make wise decisions regarding the uh, possibility of war in Iraq as well as the ongoing war against terrorism. Father, we pray for this nation that this would be a time that you would uh, be using to get people's attention to the uncertainty of life, the fact that all finite life is uncertain and the only real certainty and stability comes from you. Father, we pray that you would help us as we study the things we focus on this morning, that you would help us to understand them, and that we would see how they relate to our own lives and then have the courage and objectivity to make the uh, correct application. 
We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and we will begin in verse 25. Now, we have been studying the subject of marriage uh, in chapter 7. We've focused on the questions of the biblical view of love, sex, marriage, and divorce. As this concept of marriage is the, really the background of this chapter, actually the question that was raised by the Corinthians had to do with celibacy, and they had fallen prey to a, a humanistic, human viewpoint thinking that somehow celibacy, somehow singleness was more spiritual than uh, marriage, and that somehow there was something sinful associated with sex in marriage. So they were putting an emphasis on the wrong thing, and consequently the Apostle Paul had to straighten them out. Now, tangential to this con- this whole topic of marriage, a uh, little interesting news item came across my desk this last week that I thought I would inform you of. Remember, the Scriptures make it clear that marriage is a divine institution uh, for the entire human race, believer and unbeliever, and as such, the practice of marriage is important for the stability of a nation when the institutions, when any of the four divine institutions are attacked and begin to weaken, then a nation and a culture will implode. It will weaken from the inside and eventually all of the social structures will uh, deteriorate. This is one of the reasons why there is such a, an assault on this nation today in both the arena of family life and marriage, and one of the attacks on marriage comes from the uh, sodomite crowd and the uh, the lesbians and the homosexuals seeking to destroy marriage in terms of its definition is a marriage between a man and a woman, not, uh, there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. Now, it's interesting how Evil always seems to hoist itself on its own petard at some point. Scripture makes it clear that you reap what you sow. And uh, a couple of years ago, the Sodomite crowd had a, celebrated a tremendous victory when the folks up in, uh, up in Vermont passed that uh, civil union law. And so thousands of uh, homosexuals have flocked to uh, Vermont over the last couple of years in order to have uh, their union legalized. Well, there's some problems that have come about and virtually destroyed the impact of that whole civil law, and that is that it has been challenged in court. One case involved a lesbian in, um, in Georgia, left her husband, got involved with another woman, living with another woman, and as part of the divorce decree, uh, the judge put in the rule that neither uh, the, the husband or the wife could have the, their children stay over, even though the husband had custody. They couldn't have their children in the house if they had a sleepover uh, guest. So uh, the woman uh, eventually decided to go to Vermont to have her civil union legitimized or have her union legitimized by the civil union law and um, came back to Georgia took it to court to have, uh, now that this union is legitimate, to have the uh, divorce decree changed. Well, um, Georgia had passed a Defense of Marriage Act called the DOM, D-O-M, 
they had passed a Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, D-O-M-A, and the federal government has also passed a Defense of Marriage Act, and both of these laws identified marriage as being for only men, a man, one man to one woman. So the Georgia court said that we don't recognize a civil union in Vermont, and we don't recognize anything about that at all because it violates not only our DOMA, but it also violates the federal DOMA. So that has become a landmark case. And then there was a case in, here in Connecticut where there were two male sodomites living together, and they decided to uh, make their union official. So they traipsed up to uh, Vermont and had a civil union uh, validated up there. And then they decided to go their separate ways after six months. But when Vermont passed that civil union law, they, part of the law reads that in order to invalidate the union or have it uh, annulled, you have to be a resident of Vermont for six months before you can file, and then you, it's another six months before that civil union is, uh, is nullified. So now uh, they're stuck because they can't, neither one of them can go back to Vermont and live there for six months. And of the some, something like 4,300 civil unions that have been performed since uh, 98 up in Vermont, 83% of them were performed for non-Vermont residents. So they're hung with this, this uh, civil union that uh, can only be nullified if one or both of the parties move back, move to Vermont and establish residency for six months. So it's interesting how, you know, somehow evil seems to reap its own reward eventually. But the forces of evil continue to fight and continue to seek to destroy this nation, and it is only believers who are applying doctrine that can uh, provide any sure defense against this, this onslaught. Now, we see the same kinds of things happening throughout church history, and this is one of the reasons why 1 Corinthians is included in the canon of Scripture, because they had just about every kind of problem that uh, has manifested itself in the church, from marriage problems and problems understanding sex to problems with carnality and arrogance and a number of other problems we'll address as we continue our study. But in this particular chapter, Paul continues to emphasize the importance of the status quo. Now, we looked last time at verses 17 through 24, where the main idea was for believers to stay in the status in which they were called. And Paul is not saying stay there indefinitely, stay there for the rest of your life, but don't. But his point is don't think that by changing your status that somehow you're going to be more spiritual or more effective for the Lord. The Lord will and may change your status at some point in your life and give you that opportunity, but don't think that just changing your circumstances, changing the people around you will somehow solve the problems. Remember, especially as it comes to marriage, a person is no better in marriage than they are as a single individual. Many times, almost exclusively, the problems I see in any kind of of um, marriage counseling is that the problems that manifest themselves in the marriage relationship are often the same problems that are manifested in every other relationship that an individual has. And if they have a problem with uh, arrogance in the marriage, uh, then they probably have a problem with arrogance in every other uh, 
relationship that they have. And so these things tend to be patterns that are played out throughout life. So changing your circumstances will not change the basic problem, which is one's own uh, sin nature. So in verses 17 through 24, Paul focused on two particular instances where people tended to think that somehow a change in circumstances could change their, or put them in a better position to serve the Lord. The first had to do with circumcision, Jews wanting to uh, erase the fact that they were Jews because they now understood grace, and Gentiles who thought that they ought to be circumcised to come in under the law, that that would make them a little more spiritual. That was the first case. Um, verses 18 and 19, and then the second case had to do with their economic status and verses 21 and 22 and the situation of a slave, that somehow that people a slave might get the idea that, oh, I could serve the Lord so much better if I could travel, if I had my freedom, if I could go wherever I wanted. How could the God really want me to be happy and stay in this position of slavery. I could be so much more effective somewhere else and, of course, use that as a rational rationalization or justification to um, escape their uh, enslaved condition. But Paul says, stay in the condition you were in, and if the Lord tends to, or if the Lord frees you, then utilize that opportunity for the Lord, but if not, you can still serve the Lord where you are, and that's an important principle that people forget, that your circumstances don't determine how you can serve the Lord in your individual position, no matter what it is, or where you are in life, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're working in a secular job, or whether you're not working at all. Whatever your condition, you're to stay in that condition, and the Lord is the one who's in control of the circumstances of life, and you can serve the Lord, and you can grow spiritually in whatever situation you're in. So he's applied that to two conditions already, and now he's going to apply it to marriage, starting in verse 25 down through the end of the chapter. And the main idea of this whole section is that there is an advantage to being Single, but it is not an advantage that makes one uh, spiritually superior. See, that's the problem that the Roman Catholic Church slipped into in the early Middle Ages because of the influence of, of uh, Neoplatonism, and that was this idea that somehow you could be more—you uh, were more spiritual if you were single and celibate—and so there was the rise of the priesthood, the celibate priesthood, and. Uh, the rise of, of uh, keeping women as uh, virgins and nuns. And that has, of course, presented an entire host of problems, which we've seen uh, some terrible things going on in recent, recent months. Now, that doesn't characterize every single person who's a priest or a nun, but it certainly is a product of erroneous thinking. What Paul is saying is your single status and your marriage status is not indicative of spirituality. You can be just as spiritual and just as effective serving the Lord if you're single or if you're married. But if you're married, there are going to be other issues in life. There are going to be uh, other priorities. There are going to be uh, other uh, responsibilities that may keep you from serving the Lord as much as if you are single. But don't think that you should therefore stay single simply to serve the Lord because that is only for those who have been so gifted and that is clearly discussed back in uh, verse 7 that it is uh, a gift from the Lord. So Paul begins in verse 25 with this phrase that we that I've mentioned 
a couple of times that we will find throughout this final section of of uh, Corinthians. In the Greek, it looks like this: peri de, p e r i d e, and it literally means now concerning, and it is a clear reference to the fact that he is changing the subject or he's addressing a new question. And apparently a question has come up related to, there were two questions related to this celibacy issue. One was, is um, is is it legitimate to stay, a cel- to stay celibate in marriage in order to be more spiritual? And then the second question had to do with, the, with uh, just staying single uh, without getting married. Is that somehow more spiritual? So he changes the subject to answer this second question related to staying single as somehow being more, more spiritual. And in verse 25 he says, Now concerning virgins. I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. Now, we need to look at the fact that this uh, relates to an important doctrine, which is the doctrine of inspiration. When Paul says, I have no commandment from the Lord, there are those who go to this passage and say, well, look, see, here Paul is going to give his opinion. He doesn't have anything directly from uh uh, from the Lord, so he's just giving his opinion, and so the next uh, several verses are just expressing Paul's opinion. It's an informed opinion, of course. It it comes from his experience, but it's not uh, a mandate from the Lord. And of course, that is a violation of what the Scriptures teach regarding inerrancy. Notice uh, down to verse 40. This is an inclusive ch- section. Between 25 and 40, he brings up the same issue of inspiration and his authority. In verse 40, he says, uh, at the very end, he says, I think I also have the Spirit of God. This is according to my judgment, and I think I also have the Spirit of God. And the point that he is making is that his judgment isn't just an informed opinion. His judgment isn't just based on his wide experience as an apostle having traveled around uh, the ancient world, visiting many churches and observing many problems in, in many marriages. What he is pointing out is that the Lord did not address specific issues during the time of the uh, Messianic age, during the time of the Incarnation, that the Lord did not cover everything he, in those three years of his public ministry. He taught on many subjects, but there were many other subjects that the disciples weren't ready to hear and many other subjects that they weren't prepared for, and those subjects would be addressed in the apostolic period through the uh, writings of the Apostle Paul, Peter, James, and John. And so there is much more that the Lord did not cover. And so Paul is saying that God the Son during the Incarnation did not address everything regarding marriage and celibacy, sex, and divorce, and he is giving more information, additional revelation, under the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit. Remember, it is all of the writings of the New Testament are inspired, that is, breathed out by God. Scripture says that, that all Scripture is God-breathed. The word inspired is confusing in English because we often think that inspired has to do with uh, someone who has a particularly uh, brilliant insight into something. 
we talk about writers of, of poetry as being inspired or somebody has a brilliant idea in, in business and it was just a, a stroke of inspiration. But that's not what this word means in the original Greek. The original Greek is the word theotnoustos, which means God breathed. It's a compound word from theos, meaning God, and noustos, meaning when breath or to breathe in the ver- verbal form. So it means that all scripture is breathed out by God. That means its origin is God. Its origin is not man. This is one of the problems that occurred in the 19th century with liberalism is that they clearly recognize, the enemies of Christianity that is, clearly recognize that if you are going to assault any position, the best place to, to make that assault is on its authority basis. And so they assaulted the authority of Scripture. And uh, by the early 20th century, most Protestant denominations were teaching that the Bible was not the breathed-out, infallible Word of God, but it was simply the recorded impressions of various different uh, people throughout history of of their, their impressions of God and their experience with spiritual things. And this changed the focal point from objective truth coming from God to subjective impressions coming from man. And therefore, if it comes from man, man being fallible, then it can have error in it. And so you had the rise of those who believed that the Bible was errant, that is, that it contained error. But we do not believe that. We believe the Bible is infallible and inerrant. So in view of that, we need to give a definition of inspiration. And in our definition of inspiration, we state that God the Holy Spirit so supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture that without waiving their human intelligence, vocabulary, individuality, literary style, personality, personal feelings, or any other human factor, his complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect accuracy in the original languages of Scripture the very words bearing the authority of divine authorship. Now, when we give that definition, we emphasize the fact that the member of the Trinity that was primarily responsible for for the giving of Scripture, for revelation, is God the Holy Spirit. And somehow he overrode the writers of Scripture in such a way that he could direct them to write that which he intended to have written. He could guarantee that it was free from any error, But in the process, it's not a dictation theory. He doesn't dictate what they're to write. They write it. They have their own personality. It's clear when you study Paul that Paul has a particular style, a particular way of writing. You study John. He has a particular style, a particular way of writing. Their vocabulary differs. Paul will emphasize certain concepts. One that we studied is that Paul uses the phrase, in Christ. This is a particularly well-known Pauline expression. John uses the phrase in him, but for John the phrase in him relates to fellowship, whereas for Paul the phrase in Christ relates to our position in Christ from the instant of salvation. So there are similarities in their vocabulary, but you have to study each individual author and how that author uses those words and phrases in order to make sure that you accurately understand them. So that their their, their own intelligence comes through, 
their own individuality comes through, their own literary style comes through, and it is possible to get a picture of each one's personality by the way they write and the way they address their audience. So here we see that Paul is simply saying that Jesus Christ during the Incarnation did not give any commandment, did not give any information related to virgins. And this, by this term, he is referring to unmarried young women. It is not a term that you can relate to, although some try to relate it to men. He's primarily addressing the question of, of daughters, and he comes back and addresses that particular issue in verses uh, 37 and 38 of this particular chapter. Now, as Paul addresses this subject, he is going to give six reasons why it is important for someone to remain single. He is not saying that it is wrong to marry. He's going to make that very clear. He's not saying it's wrong to remain single. One is not superior to the other in any spiritual sense. However, there are practical values to being single because it allows one to serve the Lord in a more dedicated manner. So he gives six reasons, and this is the basic outline of these uh, verses from verses 25 through 40. He says that uh, it's better to remain single because of the pressure of persecution and adversity in the cosmic system. This is covered in verses 25 to 27. Verse 28, he says there are also, also it's better to remain single because of the problems of additional uh, responsibilities. Verse 28. Third, he will note that there is a it's better to remain single because of the temporary nature of this life. Verses 29 to 31. Then his fourth reason is that there are pressures of priorities in verses 32 to 35. Fifth, he will say it's better to remain single because of uh, of the promise, the faithfulness of fathers towards daughters, verses 36 to 38. And then in verse 6, because of the seriousness of marriage in verses 39 to 40. Now, in the first section, verses 25 through 27, his basic point is that single status has great benefit when you're in the midst of some great catastrophe or pressure. If you were living in Poland in 1939, it would be better to be single than to be married with children because in the midst of the war that was about to come, if you were married, you would be distracted. You would have the cares of wife, the cares of children, and so this would be a tremendous burden of responsibility. This is the idea here. He recognizes that during this age, especially at that particular time, that uh, there would be persecutions, there would be adversity from the government toward Christians, and so it would be less troublesome to be single than to be married. So he recognizes that there will be times when there would be pressure, persecution, and adversity from the cosmic system. says in verse 25, Now concerning virgins, I have no commandment from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord, in his mercy, literally he is saying, I give judgment as one whom, whom the Lord, uh, as one who has found mercy by the Lord, literally, one who has received mercy. We have a, a um, perfect passive participle of Eliao there. He has received mercy from the Lord. So he emphasizes the 
grace benefit that he has as one as an apostle who has been chosen to give divine revelation. He has received mercy from the Lord. It is not due to him that he has this revelation, that he is he, he is not the one who chose himself or appointed himself to be an apostle, but he has received mercy from the Lord. And as part of this, he is to be faithful in his giving of revelation. Verse 26, he says, I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. Because of the present distress, and there he is emphasizing the fact that there was persecutions. For example, this letter is written during the time of Nero when there were persecutions against Christians. And his conclusion is it's, it's better during times of calamity, times of stress, to um, remain single. That way you have a, a less to concern you without having family responsibilities and be worried about a wife. So he says it's good for a man to remain as he is, and he uses the word kalos for good. He says it is good for a man to remain as he is, and kalos has to do with a good of intrinsic value. So he says this is a good thing to remain single, to remain as you are, to remain single. But then he is going to balance it out. See, he's always careful in this section because he realizes that any time he says one thing, there's always some element in the group that is going to take it to the extreme and and run with it in the wrong direction. So he has to constantly balance things out. See, the Christian life is a life based on wisdom. When you're a young believer, when you are... Uh, when you don't have much doctrine in your soul and you're still operating on a lot of human viewpoint and cosmic concepts and the sin nature is running rampant in your soul, then uh, the ch- most of the choices that you have are choices between good and bad. But as you mature as a believer, the choices aren't so much between good versus bad, sin versus uh, obedience to the Lord. Your choices are between that which is good and that which is better. And in order to make those decisions, you have to have a certain amount of doctrine in your soul because you have to be able to perceive what the long-term consequences can be. There's a lot of times, as you know, that I get invitations to go speak in various different places. And I turn down a lot of invitations because I just don't have the time. You have to choose. It's not that there's anything wrong with going there or it's not that... Uh, anything of, of that basis, it's that you have to decide on the basis of priorities what your prime, where your primary effectiveness is. And so you, often there, we make decisions not based on good or bad, but on base, based on what is best. And that is very difficult for many people because they always want to, to put things in a black and white situation. They always want every decision to be good versus bad. But the Lord recognizes that in, in our lives we make many decisions where the choices are not always black and white. The choices are between that which is good and that which is best, and that is an underlying theme uh, in this entire section. So he is saying it's good for a man to remain as he is, and that means if you're, if you're single, stay single. If you're married, stay married to remain as you are. This is his principle. Don't think that by changing your status, especially if you're married, 
to being single after he makes these six points. He recognizes that there's a whole bunch of people out there who will probably use this as a good excuse to dump their wife or dump their husband so that they, under the guise of serving the Lord. He says, I suppose, therefore, it's, it's good because of the present distress that it's good for a man to main, remain as he is. And then he asks a couple of questions in order to clarify what he is saying. In verse 27, he says, are you bound to a wife? And this is the perfect um, active indicative of the verb deo, which is used uh, in, in Romans chapter 7 to refer to uh, the marriage uh, bonds, to being married to someone. So he's clearly talking about marriage here. Are you, are you married to a wife? Are you legally uh, bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. And here he uses a, a, a unique word. He uses the word looso. Do not seek to be released. And in, clearly in context, it's talking about divorce, even though this is not a word that is commonly used for divorce. He uses this word here because he is, he is going to apply it to both those who are single, who don't have a wife yet, and those who are divorced. So it is a broader term. It's a more general term. It's not uh, technically a term for divorce. We get that only from the context. Are you uh, legally bound to a wife? Are you married? Do not seek to be loose. Don't seek to be divorced. Don't think that somehow uh, you, if you if you get rid of your wife or get rid of your husband, that you'll be more spiritual and that you can go serve the Lord more effectively. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your husband for the fact that you can't do certain things spiritually. God put you where you are, and if you're saved in that particular circumstance, whether you're a slave whether you are Jew or Greek, whether you are married, God in his omniscience knew exactly what your situation would be, and you stay there because you can serve the Lord, and your service from the Lord is not going to be determined by your marital status. So he says, if you're married, don't seek to be divorced. And then he says, are you loosed from a wife? And that could imply either uh, being single, not yet married, or being divorced. If you're loose from a wife, do not seek a wife. And that fits his principle that he stated all through here. Stay in your status quo, and it's really better to be single than, than to be married. In fact, this is the fourth time he has stated this status quo principle in this section. He states it in verse 17. He states it again in verse 20. He stated it again in verse 24. And he will, he's stating it again in this verse, verse 27. So he is, he says, if you're, if you're married, stay, don't seek to be divorced. If you're single, don't seek to be, I mean, he says, um, uh, yeah, if you're single or whether you're divorced or you just haven't married, don't seek a wife. Don't think that by getting married, you're going to improve your chances of ministry. That's something that every single seminary student ought to have, uh, emblazoned over their door or embroidered on a pillow because there's a tremendous pressure in Bible colleges and in Christian schools that somehow you need to get married. And I saw a number of friends uh, fall prey to this pressure during seminary, and in a number of cases their marriages did not survive beyond a year or two after seminary if they survived seminary. I had a very good friend that got married as, as a result of this kind of pressure and this kind of thinking. He got married the second year of seminary and was divorced before the year was out. That ended his 
uh, career in seminary and ended his uh, ministry. He never recovered spiritually from his bad decisions. In fact, he last I heard, he was teaching New Age psychology. It's amazing what the consequences of our bad decisions will be. But Paul goes on to say in verse 28, But even if you do marry, third class condition, if you're divorced or single, even if you do marry, you have not sinned. Now, he's not making a blanket statement here. Remember, there are certain exceptions. He said if you initiated a divorce and you just left without biblical cause, then you are to stay uh, stay single back in verse 10. He is clearly stating this in light of the marriage and divorce teaching of our Lord in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, that uh, there he talks about uh, sexual uncleanness as a basis for marriage, sexual immorality of various categories as a, ba- as a legitimate basis for divorce and remarriage. So here he says, recognizing the exceptions, recognizing that it, this isn't true in every case, but if you have a legitimate right to remarry, it's not a sin. He is emphasizing the fact that, look, marriage isn't a sin, singleness isn't a sin, uh, staying single isn't more spiritual, staying married isn't more spiritual, it has a practical value. Verse 28, but even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. There is nothing wrong with marriage. So obviously there was, there were two problems going on in Corinth. Problem number one was they thought that, that sex somehow, uh, tainted you spiritually, and problem number two was that getting married somehow, uh, tainted you spiritually. Both of which came out of their uh, the influence of Platonism in that Greek culture. And then he says in verse 28, and this is his second, second problem that you have if you're married. He says, nevertheless, such, that is those who get married, such will have tra- trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. If you're married, you're going to have certain problems that you don't have if you're single. Your spouse is going to have adversity in their life that will become your adversity. If they have health problems, if they have uh, any number of problems in life, if they have problems related to their career, if your uh, husband or wife becomes unemployed, or if they have uh, any number of other problems, if they have problems with their family and responsibilities toward their family, those responsibilities become your responsibility. So you take on additional responsibilities and you can have additional problems. There's clearly additional joy and happiness as well. This is not just a, a negative thing, but that is what Paul is emphasizing in this context is that there is a certain practical value to staying single. It is not a spiritual value. So he recognizes the problems of additional responsibilities when he says, nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. Uh, Here he says um, the idea that I would spare you is what's called a conative present tense. That is, I am trying to spare you. I am attempting to spare you of this trouble by giving you a little wise advice. And this is important advice for everybody who's single you know, even in our culture today, uh, there's so many people who don't get married. They just go off and live together. And that, of course, is not uh, approved at all by Scripture. But what Paul is emphasizing here is don't get married too quickly. Be very careful about getting married. In fact, I think that, that it's uh, uh, 
not very wise for anyone today to get married before they're about 25. Very few people have any clue what they want to do with their life until they're 24, 25, 26, 27, somewhere in there. Most uh, don't get out of college until they're 22 or 23. They're just starting a career. They have many decisions to make. Most people go to college and major in one thing. They get out and they work for a year or two in that career, and then the next year they're in a totally different job. Very few people are working in their in their uh, major in college within two years of graduation. And Scripture makes it clear, especially for, for uh, young women, that when you marry a man, your job is to help him in the direction of his life. Well, until until he knows what the direction for his life is, you better not marry him because he may uh, he may be uh, not very ambitious at age 23 and suddenly become very uh, ambitious, crack that maturity barrier at age 24, 25, decide to go back to school and become a become a doctor, and all of a sudden now you're married to somebody who has a totally different direction in life. Uh, they're going to be involved in a career that's going to keep them uh, away from the home for long hours. They're going to be going through a lot of intense schooling for uh, several years. And so the situation that develops is going to be completely different from that which you you envisioned. Uh, don't get married too quickly. Uh, take your time. Wait until there is maturity and wait until you're old enough to know what you want and to understand the difference between uh, marrying on the, on a wave of uh, libido and marrying because you actually have soul rapport with that other person. So in verse 28, Paul warns against uh, marriage and the trouble that you can have in marriage. And then in verse 29, he says, he is going to relate this to the problem of time management. Now, this is r- crucial in the lives of so many people. Most people are extremely inefficient in the way they manage their use of time. I remember when I was um, first starting seminary, and uh, my good friend Randy Price had already begun Dallas Seminary, and I went up to visit him one day, and uh, one weekend, and Randy and I were talking, and he said, Rob, you have to realize what your priorities are. One of the things that will really, that separates the men from the boys in seminary is those who have reached a point where they can define their priorities in relationship to seminary and then uh, just get rid of everything else in their life. And there's so many men who have different interests in life. And there were, of course, when you're at that age, 23, 24, 25, going to seminary, a lot of guys were very athletic and they were involved in a lot of different sports. Some were playing golf. I remember going through seminary with a guy who had been a professional golfer. And the hardest thing for him was the fact that he had to give up getting on the golf course while he went through seminary. Because that was a tremendous distraction. There are many things that are good and enjoyable in their place, but they can become a distraction in life from what your real priorities are. And the real priorities in our life should be those that, that are related to our ultimate destiny as those who will rule and reign with Jesus Christ. We need to define our lives by our spiritual priorities in terms of spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, and our eternal destiny, and then let that determine how we spend our time, how we organize our time. It may even determine the kinds of jobs or careers that we have in this life in order to be able to fulfill uh, these 
obligations. Time is a crucial issue for every one of us. We only have a certain amount of time. In fact, in Ephesians uh, 5, 16, and 17, we are told to redeem the time. That is, it's very easy to waste a lot of time, and you have to take, take a look at how you spend your time. Now, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be time for relaxation. We all need time to relax. We need time to unwind. We need time to let our, our brains rest. But we have to understand how to uh, prioritize that, and we have to plan uh, our time. If we're going to be organized and accomplishing anything in life, then you need to pl- plan your time and how you're, you're going to use it in relationship to your priorities. We can't do everything. No one can do everything. Uh, every one of us has to uh, orient our time planning to our goals and objectives. If you're married, you have to spend a certain amount of time in that relationship with your spouse. You have to spend time together. And if you have children, uh, you have responsibilities to spend time with your children as the father and as, a, as the mother. You also have to find time to spend alone with each other. One tragedy that affects many couples is they spend so much time as a family, so much time with the children, that after 18 or 20 years go by and the kids finally grow up and leave the house, the the mom and dad look at each other and they don't know each other anymore. They have not cultivated that relationship with each other through those years. And then they hit some rocky ground sometimes, and sometimes the marriage ends up in divorce simply because they spent so much time taking care of all the activities of life that they were no longer spending time developing that relationship with one another. And that is very important. You have to uh, prioritize your time in terms of the importance of Bible doctrine. That needs to be the highest priority. Being in class Sunday morning, Wednesday night, listening to tapes. If you don't have your priorities right in terms of taking in doctrine, then everything else can fall apart because doctrine is what gives you perspective. And even if you just listen to a tape for 10 or 15 minutes each day, that helps to refocus your thinking in the midst of all of the uh, problems of life, in the midst of all the hubbub, all of the demands, all of the things that go on. Just listening to doctrine for 15 or 20 minutes helps to focus your attention back on those eternal realities and your relationship with God. You have to have your spiritual priorities right. Then you have to look at the priorities related to your responsibilities in the family as a husband, as a wife, as a father, as a mother. Furthermore, you have to look at spiritual priorities in terms of your spiritual service, that every believer is in full-time Christian service. You have been given spiritual gifts to use. You have responsibilities in relationship to the body of Christ to serve the Lord in some capacity. And sometimes, especially in a small church like we have, that capacity may not necessarily be related to to uh, your spiritual gift. If we had 150 or 200 people here, then we would have uh, a certain number of people or more people who had the gift of teaching. But whether we have two people with the gift of teaching 
or 15 people with the gift of teaching, we still need about 12 or 14 people in prep school who are teaching, whether that's their spiritual gift or not. We have a responsibility as a body to be preparing the children in, in, in the local church so that they can be spiritually effective as adults and so that when they become uh, 13, 14, 15 years of age, they can come into uh, Bible class and understand the things that are going on. And this is something that's always going to be a struggle for a small congregation and always is a struggle for a small congregation. And this is one of the toughest jobs is uh, running the prep school or Sunday school is getting people who will dedicate themselves to teaching in those uh, prep school classes. And uh, that's always a problem. It's been a problem in almost every congregation I've been in because I've always been in smaller congregations under 100 or 150. And yet, nevertheless, we have those responsibilities. And right now is a great opportunity because there are two openings in prep school and there need to be some people who perhaps you've never taught before. Maybe there you can team up uh, with somebody who has, or maybe if you don't want to take the full responsibility, uh, there, there are some classes downstairs where we have had team teaching in the past. But this is something that needs to be done. We have this responsibility. It's the responsibility for every one of us to participate in these areas. There's responsibility for giving. There's responsibility for uh, just helping out with the physical plant, taking care of the property, taking care of the, the building itself. And there are many people, many of you are very generous and have been very generous with your, your time and your help and taking care of these things over the years. But all of this is related to simply our serving the Lord on this earth. We all serve in different capacities and different ways, and all of this is related to our priorities. Now, a person who is married sometimes cannot do some of these things as well as someone who is single simply because they have other responsibilities, responsibilities to, to their spouse, responsibilities uh, to their children. Now, that is not to say that marriage is a distraction in a negative, cons- in a negative way. Uh, notice that the bishop, the overseer, the pastor, part of his the requirements for a pastor in 1 Timothy 3 is that he's a husband of one wife. That doesn't mean that every pastor has to be married. But it is the normal expectation of 1 Timothy 3 that a pastor under most conditions is going to be married. That means that a pastor is going to have responsibilities to his family. He's going to have responsibility to his wife. If he has children, he will have responsibilities to his children. This is one thing that is... um, that I'm very pleased with and have been in terms of the flexibility of this congregation, recognizing the fact that that I have family responsibilities, especially an elderly father who is uh, uh, not in the best of health, and that I have to uh, trek down to Houston more frequently than I would like to in order to take care of those family responsibilities since since I'm an only child. And, um, and also the fact that both my wife and I are uh, have family in Texas that's not local, that we still have family responsibilities at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, that we have to go spend time with, with family. And in, especially in my case, my family can't uh, travel up here. So there has to be that level of flexibility that limits uh, certain things that I would like to do simply because I have those family responsibilities. And this last year I've had to cut out uh, some speaking engagements 
because I've needed to take the time to go to Houston and take care of family responsibilities there rather than going somewhere uh, where I could teach the Word. Now, some people would say, well, the teaching the Word has uh, higher priority. Well, that's what I mean so you, when, when, I come, when I recognize the fact that there are decisions we make in life that are not between good versus evil. They're between different areas of responsibilities in our own lives, and we all face those where we have different responsibilities and we have to make a decision as to how we spend that time. Now, nothing mandates that I need to go teach the Word at every single opportunity that comes up. And I can't do that, and nobody can. But we have to make those decisions in relationship to other responsibilities. And since there's no one else to fulfill the responsibilities I have uh, towards my father and my family, then I have to take that time, and it has to come from somewhere, so it limits other things that I can do that are also good. But if I did not... Um, take care of my family as Paul says in 1 Timothy the person the man who doesn't take care of his family is worse than an infidel he's worse than an unbeliever so there are clearly obligations on us in life that uh, challenge us in terms of our time management time is short we only have so much disposable time and that is a major test for every one of us is how do you spend your time and sometimes it's important to uh, just step back from life and do a little t- uh, analysis on how we spend our time. How much time do we devote to work each week? How much time do we devote to family time? How much time do we devote to our own personal uh, spiritual growth and our own personal study of scriptures? And how do we look? At, how does that uh, stack up in relationship to ultimate priorities and our eternal destiny? So Paul recognizes the time is short in verse 29, and he says, uh, then he goes on to say, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Verse 30, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice, and those who buy as though they did not possess, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. Now, in these two verses, Paul recognizes the fact that there are certain legitimate functions in life that we have to set aside sometimes in light of spiritual priorities and in light of wise principles of time management. The first one that he mentions is the in the area of sorrow and grief. Everybody goes through times when they experience uh, sorrow, when they go through grief, when they lose loved ones. Sometimes you go through grief when you lose a job or when certain things change in life. Sometimes uh, there are people who go through, who are prone to certain types of depressions. And what Paul says here is those who sorrow, those who grieve, as though they did not grieve. In other words, it may be legitimate to take that time to grieve, take that time to sorrow, uh, may be legitimate, but you set that aside because there's a higher priority in terms of serving the Lord. Then the second one he mentions is rejoicing, that is happiness, uh, the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of entertainment, and the enjoyment of life. Uh, what happens in um, in our culture today is that uh, when when people lose a a focus on doctrine as a source of stability and happiness that they tend to 
uh, replace that with a frantic search for happiness where they look to uh, entertainment and uh, all kinds of other distractions in order to anesthetize the basic emptiness and pain in their life. So they pursue pleasure and hobbies and various means of relaxation so that they don't have to ever stop and think about uh, the ultimate realities of life. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong in and of itself to be involved in in uh, playing golf or be involved in rebuilding cars or be involved in, in various sports hobbies. But if that's a distraction from higher priorities, then it does become a problem. And I've known cases where where people have uh, gotten involved in some uh, hobby, for example, uh, sailing, and uh, it takes a lot of time, takes a certain amount of money, takes a certain amount of of, uh, of uh, energy to to go sailing. It takes a lot of you're gone for sometimes days at a time. And uh, this particular case, and next thing you know, people are so caught up in their hobbies that they're not in Bible class, and before long, uh, they're not even listening to a tape. They're just so caught up in the details of life. So what Paul is saying is that even though uh, you go through life and there are many legitimate things that you can spend your time and money on, they become illegitimate when it is a distraction to your spiritual life. The third area he talks about is just uh, economics, the pursuit of business, buying and selling. Of course, this is a problem for, for some people is the pursuit of their business, their career, becomes such an overriding uh, priority in their life that they really don't have time to focus on spiritual life or spiritual priorities. And so the purpose of their business ultimately uh, becomes an end in itself and not recognizing that one of the goals of business is simply to provide food, shelter, and clothing for the family and also financial resources for support of the Lord's work, whether it's a local church or missions or whatever it might be. And once business takes over as an end in itself, then it's not long before uh, doctrine becomes a victim in that person's life and disappears as a priority in that person's life. So in verse 32, Paul goes on to say that the another reason for staying single is to avoid the pressure of these priorities. We have the time pressure in verse 29. In verse 32 to 35, we've got the pressure of priorities. It says, but I want, I want you to be without care, that is, without worry or anxiety. And when you are married, you have a certain amount of anxiety at times for uh, your children for your and for your wife. He says, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord. That's the only thing that he has that can uh, he can focus his attention on, how he may please the Lord. And then verse 33 says, but he who is married cares about the things of this world, how he may please his wife. See, husbands, that needs to be part of your priority, is thinking about how you can please your wife. That's what it means over in Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, 22, that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This needs to be something that characterizes your thinking. You need to take time to to plan out how you are going to um, spend time with your wife, how you can please your wife, how you can help your wife, how you can uh, encourage her in her life, and how you can be a, a blessing in her life as opposed to an albatross hanging around her neck. And that's true for some husbands. They uh, they expect their wife to do everything, and then 
work 40 hours a week on top of it, and they never uh, think about helping out around the home. So Paul emphasizes the fact that the one who is married not only is concerned about spiritual things, but he needs to be concerned about his wife. He needs to spend his time thinking about her and thinking about uh, family responsibilities. And if he has children, uh, the responsibilities of being a father. In verse 34, he says there is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. So now he addresses the the woman. He's addressed the husband and the husband's priorities in verse 33 and the woman's priorities in verse 34. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Now that's really an awkward translation. It's legitimate, but we, we don't often understand the word holy in our society. The word holy means to be set apart for the service of the Lord. So in other words, spending your time to serve the Lord as opposed to spending the time uh, taking care of other responsibilities. So the unmarried woman can focus her uh, she has more time to focus on serving the Lord, to be involved in a variety of different functions, uh, supporting ministries at the local church, uh, prayer, whatever it may be, functioning in her role as both a believer priest and a royal ambassador, that she has uh, more time to do that. But the one who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. So, ladies, now it's your turn. You have to spend time thinking about your husband and taking care of your husband, understanding his strengths and his weaknesses, and uh, supporting him. Remember, the primary role of a wife is to be a helper, an assistant to the husband in terms of their team uh, responsibilities at being married before the Lord in advancing uh and advancing in their ministry together, whatever that may be, and that differs from family to family. Some have more overt ministries, such as teaching. Some have uh, more covert ministries, such as prayer, giving, that are more private and less obvious and less seen. But whatever it may be, whatever the, the man is called by vocation and by spiritual calling to do, by a spiritual gift, the wife is to uh, be a support for him and an assistant for him. So in both cases you have, in marriage, the husband and the wife are concerned about their spouse and taking care of their spouse and pleasing their spouse, and that takes time away from serving the Lord. So Paul's emphasis here is not on the fact that being married or being single is in and of itself more spiritual. It's just practical. Being single gives you more time to serve the Lord. Now we come to verse 36. And in verse 36 to 38, we see his emphasis on the responsibility of fathers and oversight for their daughters. Verse 36, he says, "Uh, But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly toward his virgin, that is, toward his virgin daughter, if she is past the flower of youth, that means that, uh, fathers, you have a responsibility to watch over your daughters and to protect them, especially when they are going through dating and courtship. And when she gets past the flower of her youth is an euphemism, but when she gets past that stage when she is making her decisions based on uh, based on waves of libido, that uh, when she gets mature enough to get married, then you can allow her to get married. It's not a sin to allow her to get married. 
And that's his point here, is let them do whatever uh, he wishes. He does not sin, let them marry. So it's not wrong to allow your daughter to get married. It's uh, Remember, marriage and celibacy are not ends in, in and of themselves and do not involve inherently spiritually superior positions. That's the background for understanding this. It's not a problem if you let your virgin daughter marry. It's not going to affect her spiritually. Verse 37, he says, Nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and is so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. In verse 36, it's the father who allows the daughter to marry. In verse 37, this is the father who is keeping his daughter uh, single. She needs to stay single, and and if that is her decision as well, then uh, he needs to uh, protect her and provide for that. Verse 38, so then he who gives her in marriage does well, but he does not, does not give her in marriage does better. And that is a poor translation, and it really emphasizes the fact that he has chosen well in that decision also. So whether they stay single or whether they get married, it is not an inherently spiritual decision, but it has to do with priorities and ultimate values. And then his final point is that staying single is superior because marriage is a permanent position. Now, we've already recognized that there are legitimate reasons for separation and divorce, but those are viewed biblically as exceptions. We live in a culture where those things are viewed as escape clauses in any marriage. If it doesn't work out well in two or three years, I can go find somebody else. Uh, The scriptures view marriage as a permanent status. That is the normative position. And Paul says it's better to stay stay single than to get married because marriage is a permanent thing. And if it doesn't work out, you're still going to have long-term problems. Anyone who has been through a divorce, especially if there were children involved, will tell you that you will go through the rest of your life with some connection to that spouse, especially if children are involved. You will continue to have some relationship with the mother or father of your children, and that will last for the rest of your life. There's so many people who think, oh, I'm going to get a divorce. I want to get rid of this person, and I don't ever want to have anything to do with them for the rest of my life. And unfortunately, it doesn't work out that way if you have children. That person is going to be a part of your life for the rest of your life in some capacity. And so if at all possible, you need to work out uh, whatever the problems are. But Paul's point is simply to emphasize the seriousness and the significance and permanence of marriage. And so it's better to stay single unless you're absolutely sure without any doubt that this is the person that God has for you and make sure that you are passionately and profoundly in love with that person and that you want to spend the rest of your life with that person. Don't jump into it hastily. You have to take time. It is a serious decision. So Paul has outlined six reasons why it is better to stay single. They don't have to do with the fact that it is inherently a better position, that it is spiritually superior. It is simply a practical thing. It is better to stay single, to avoid uh, all of the complications that can come into one's life in the midst of uh, adversity or suffering, economic collapse, depression, war, persecution. It's better to stay uh, it's better to stay single in light of the additional responsibilities and time commitments. 
It's better to stay single in light of the fact that you don't want to jump into a marriage too hastily and make a mistake. It has practical value in that you can serve the Lord at a greater level. But that's not for everyone. Very few people can live on the basis of their own sexual temptation and libido in a single status without getting involved in some sort of sexual sin. So for most people, it is better, he has said already in this chapter, for most it is better to get married. But if you can, stay single simply so you can devote more time, more energy to serving the Lord. If that's not your reasoning, then you're, you, once again, you'd be operating on wrong priorities. Next time we'll come back and deal with new study in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, and that is the problem of doubtful things and decision-making with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, this opportunity to uh, think more clearly about our own marriages, our own responsibilities as husbands, as wives, the opportunity to think in terms of how we are uh, serving you, whether we are single or whether we are married. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is unsure of their eternal destiny or uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but that God provided a perfect solution to that sin problem, and that is Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches that the wages of sin are death, that Spiritual death is the consequence of Adam's original sin, and we are all born physically alive but spiritually dead. And we cannot see heaven, we cannot have eternal life, unless we are born again. Being born again means regeneration, and that is the result of, of and happens when we express our faith alone in Christ alone. All you have to do is accept that free gift of Christ's payment on the cross for your sins. Scripture says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. So the instant you believe, and God knows when that will be in his omniscience, he knows what you are trusting for your salvation. If you have accepted that free gift of eternal life, at that instant you have a never-ending life that can never be lost. Father, we do pray that you would help us to understand the things we've studied today, that we can apply them in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.